6.1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every living thing. In fact, that mandate is repeated. It's repeated to Noah later after the flood. And it is promised to Abraham that he would have as many descendants as the sand on the seashore, that all the nations would be blessed. When you read Psalm 8 and you see that God is glorified, he's, he's majestic in all that he's made, and then that man is, is created, he's crowned with glory and honor, he, he's positioned to care for and he's to rule over all of God's creation, it seems like a complete picture. It seems like a full and complete picture, Psalm 8. But there's something unique about this psalm. Because there's something present in the psalm, but it's not so apparent. There's something that exists here, but it's not clearly revealed. It's not in between, it's not hidden between the verses. There's not a missing verse, or secret verse, I assure you of that. In fact, the psalm itself simply does not overtly make it known. We'll have to look actually outside of the psalm to really see it clearly. So Psalm 8, it's like a picture. It's like a painting, but in some ways a painting that is not yet complete, not yet finished. Now let me ask, how many of you would consider yourselves artistic? Come on. I know, there's more than that. How many of you have dabbled in artwork of various kinds, painting, drawing? How many of you have started a piece of artwork but not yet finished it on purpose? On purpose. Well, believe it or not, there's actually a body of art called, a family of artwork called unfinished art. Artists who intentionally leave their artwork unfinished and incomplete, even the likes of A Rembrandt, one of the greatest artists of all time, left some of his work unfinished. You might think, well, maybe he just got tired, right? Or he didn't like where it was going, so he stopped. Or he made a mistake, he decided to start over. But the reality is, artists, even Rembrandt, had pieces published in an unfinished state. Well, as you think about Psalm 8 here, we see it paint this beautiful picture of the majesty of of God, the beauty of all that he has made, including the glory of man, and yet we're going to see one of the New Testament authors look at the picture of Psalm 8, look at the picture of creation, the world painted in Psalm 8, and in a sense he is going to complete the story or complete or finish the picture of the psalm. Well, notice how the picture of God's world begins in Psalm 8. It doesn't begin with a focus on creation. It begins with a focus on the Creator. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, This is part of what distinguishes and characterizes the Christian. Uh, When he looks at the beauty of creation, he's not only in awe of it, he is in awe of the one who created it. He sees beyond the creation to the one who has made it in all of its splendor and majesty, the Lord. Notice in the Scriptures the word Lord is mentioned two times. 
The first one in your Bible is most likely in all capitals. It's referring to the personal covenant name of God. This is the Creator God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. O Lord, and then he says, Our Lord, which is Adonai, meaning Master, Ruler, Adonai. In other words, the one true God is He who is ruler of my life. O Lord, my Lord, our Lord, who rules our lives. And He says, how majestic is your name. What does this mean? His name, it refers to His attributes, His characteristics. When someone hears your name, it reflects your character. Your name is associated with with the kind of person you are, your attributes. The Lord's name, it represents His person, His character, His compassion and long-suffering. He is just and merciful, forgiving. He is creative, powerful. And the psalmist is saying that when he considers the earth and all of God's creation, he sees the majesty and the glory of God. And for us, trying to provide commentary on The majesty of God in verse 1, it's like trying to describe the splendor of the Grand Canyon. How do you put it in words? How do you capture the glory and the splendor of God? And yet, how many are the examples that we could consider in God's creation and how it reflects His glory? The psalmist says, you've set your glory above the heavens. I look at your heavens, the work of of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place. And we could add, and the snow, and more snow, more snow. Uh, Of course, David had no telescope, no instruments that we have today to see and witness the vastness of the universe that we can in our day. I remember being a college student at Western Washington University in an astronomy class, and our professor setting up his own telescope one evening in the football stadium for those who are interested in seeing the moon up close. And it was so moving for the first time to see up close the, cr- the craters uh, on the moon. Just remarkable. A number of years ago in an article in the National Geographic, it was describing the vastness of the universe. And it, says, it said these words, If you could travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you eight minutes to get to the sun. To go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way would take about 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group, To cross that group, you'd have to travel for two million years. The local group belongs to the Virgo cluster, part of an even larger local supercluster, which is a half billion light years across. To cross the entire universe as we know it, it would take you 20 billion light years. Now, if there is someone who can explain that to me after the service, please do so. It is mind boggling, isn't it? It's impossible to even fathom the space that God has made. 
And while the psalmist didn't have access to that kind of information, he saw God's majesty in the vastness of what he has made. When he looked at the heavens, the work of God's fingers, the moon, the stars set in in place. But then he also saw God's majesty through the display of his power in weakness. He says in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Uh, Some believe this is referring to uh, Israel itself, babies and infants, the people of God, that God displays his strength and power by overcoming his enemies and the surrounding nations through the weakness of his own people. Others, including John Calvin, saw in the mention of babies and infants reference to actual infants and children. That in the power of God, he displays his work in the conception and the birth and the life of infants and children. That God stills and he quiets his foes and enemies. Even though Calvin didn't know in his day the complex reality and process biologically, chemically at work in the birth of a newborn, he recognized the wonder, the splendor of God in the mere thought and observation of the creation of new life. And so the psalmist sees the glory, sees the majesty of God in the heavens above and in infants below. But as he paints this picture of God's glory in creation, he identifies mankind as the center the centerpiece of creation. Man is at the center of what God has made. When I look at your heavens, the moon, the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands, over all of creation. Those words, heavenly beings, could refer to angels, could refer to God himself. It's the word Elohim, which is a name used for God throughout the Old Testament. But the psalmist recognizes that in all creation, not only is mankind distinct from the rest of creation, he's at the center of creation. Very central. As we read the Genesis account In chapter 1 of Genesis, of all that God creates, he says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion. It is only man that bears the image of God. What does this mean? Man has a mind after the likeness of God. He has the capacity to reason. He has a heart a will after the likeness of God with the capacity to desire morality and godliness. Like God, he has dominion, the call to rule over creation. And so mankind is unique in all of creation, set apart from the rest of what God has made. I remember a couple summers ago while our family was in uh, Uganda because the wildlife parks are in the western part of the country, about four to six hour drive from where we were serving, our host decided in order for us to see some of the indigenous animals, we would go to what would be equivalent to a U.S. zoo instead. And we came to an area 
in the zoo where there were a number of chimpanzees. And uh, they were quite active at this particular time, quite entertaining, swinging from branches, playing in the water. They were fighting for space. And I can have a polemical uh, streak in me at times. I was kind of curious. I approached the guide uh, to learn a little bit more about the background and character of this animal. And throughout his description of the chimpanzee, he kept emphasizing how closely this animal is to the human being. He kept sharing this percentage. It's, I think, 97.4% with the same DNA as, as a human being. And so I finally asked him, has this animal, in its behavior, uh, in its thinking, in its development of culture, has it changed at all throughout history? At all? And he said, no. I'm not sure if he knew what I was trying to drive at. But you see, this is one of the unique characteristics of you and I as people made in the image of God. We're called to multiply, to have dominion, and to create Culture, society, civilization, a godly culture in which God would be pleased to dwell. That is our distinct calling as people made in His image. To create a place where God would be pleased to dwell with us. This is the picture we see painted in Psalm 8. The majesty the splendor of God and all that He has made, mankind at the center of His creation. He's ruling, creating, having dominion over the works of God. In some ways, you could end there. Is that not a complete picture? A wonderful picture of all that God has made in our place in His created world. But what do we not see in this psalm, yet so important to us, in the story of Scripture. What do we not see, yet we know is there? How is this painting or picture, in a sense, not yet finished? There's no mention of the fall. There's no mention of sin anywhere in this psalm. There is God in all His glory. There is man as the image-bearer of God, crowned with glory and honor. We see the dignity of man, but you do not see a mention of the depravity of man, and yet we know this is true of the psalm. David's the author. David knew it full well. He knew it in his own personal life, in his fall with Bathsheba, in the murder of Uriah. He knew it in those times of sinful desire to build not the kingdom of God, but his own kingdom. David knew, like all of God's redeemed children, that to truly live in God's order of creation, he would have to experience God's reordering of creation from the fall. God's reordering and redeeming of life from sin. David writes about it elsewhere. We see it in the first verses of Psalm 32. David knew that to live at the center of God's purposes means being rescued from ourselves by the Redeemer. This is how the picture of Psalm 8 is finished and filled out. It's done so by the author of Hebrews. 
If you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, it's quite marvelous how the author provides a fuller, completed meaning for us of Psalm 8. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author is emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And he comes to verse 5 of Hebrews 2. And he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And then he says in verse 6, It has been testified somewhere. And that somewhere is Psalm 8. And he quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him for a little while lower than the heavenly angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Verse 9. And we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for us. You see, while David in Psalm 8 is referring to mankind, you and I as the Son of Man, made a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor, The author of Hebrews is doing something different. He's using those words to refer to Jesus Christ, the true Son of Man, who not only came to represent the true people of God, to represent us, but to then carry upon His back our sin, to bear the mocking and the beating and the bruises and the stripes, ultimately to come and to bear the cross, that you and I might wear the crown. Do you need this morning to have Christ reorder your life through His redeeming grace? Might we see Jesus Christ above all things in our lives, exalted and glorified, Son of God and Son of Man, the One who has come, to represent the people of God, and to bear upon Himself our sin for our redemption. Let's pray together. Father, how we praise You this day in all of Your creation. How we thank You for Your Word that You have made clear to us the glory of all that You have made, the place, the privileged position in which You have placed man and woman in Your creation. Son of Man. And yet we thank You for Your grace, O God, that You draw us near to the true Son of Man who represents us through whom we have life and salvation. We pray, O Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would be at work within us, that we in our lives would more than anything anything, exalt And glorify Jesus in our hearts, in our thinking, in our very character. For you have made known, Lord, made clear from your word that it is your purpose that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we fix our eyes upon him 
the author and the perfecter of our faith. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.